0: one of the things that you keep mentioning in your book is one of your light sides your humor uh has been the either the worst or the best job in the world is to be the sunday school teacher for fifth grade boys okay (laughs) (laughs) and that made me think back to a situation um i was working toward Reaching an unreached people group who had no scripture, who had no me- no media, oh. I was asked to share some information, and I did. With the uh, missions pastor, the missions pastor sat down with the church missions committee of about thirty people, and he's showing the pictures on a screen. And all of a sudden, the chairman of the missions committee says, "Why that's," and he named the young man. And the missions pastor looked at him and said, how do you know that? I didn't say anything. And he said, he was in my fifth grade Sunday school class.
1: (laughs) Hello, folks. This is Dennis Allen. Welcome back to part two of the Disciple Dilemma's focus on life as a disciple in Asia, Africa, and in the academies, both the secular and the Christian academies. We're going to pick up with Lynn and Kate. Those aren't their real names. Lynn and Kate talking to us about where are the men in discipleship today? What's going on in the academies, both secular and Christian? What's discipleship all about anyway? The dark side of institutional discipling? What are the best, worst jobs in discipleship? How does language fit into all this? Now, what is team discipling? What's all that about? Let's listen as Lynn and Kate tell us about their adventures. Okay, Ray, explain yourself. Why is it that you guys are not getting out on the mission field? <laughs> <on> the-
2: <laughs> oh, I think, there's, I think there's some really fundamental challenges. First of all, if you're an ambitious young person who believes you've been called by God to ministry, you'd like to have an effective, broad ministry, which means you want to start a megachurch in an urban area. And so there aren't very many examples of what you would consider clerical success, which people tend to measure by how many people show up at church and how big your budget is and how big your staff is. You're not going to get much of that kind of feedback if if you haven't been said you're really here to serve Christ and he's calling you overseas. But then you've got the other problem. And this was a question, I think, for both you and uh, for for. Lynn and Kate, but how, how much, much of that whole cultural overlay that we face now, especially in the developed uh, West, Europe, and the U.S., how much of that do you think is really limiting the number of men who would be interested in or feel called to go somewhere else in the world to share the gospel?
0: Among our churches and uh, the denomination that I've served, um, it's okay for a young man directly out of college to give two years. And so we have seen a lot of young men go and it's like been there, done that, got the t-shirt and now I can get on with my real life. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I think that we face.
3: Yeah. And that's one, one thing I, I think missions may not seem like a career. It is a career. It is, it's highly specialized. It's, it takes the best of all you have. It's rewarding, it's fulfilling, it's exciting, full of adventure, full of really interesting things. So,
2: so how much how much of the problem do you think really is made worse by the current practice in North American churches of gathering up 10 teenagers and going down and building houses in Ecuador or Christian something? Organization.
1: I want to step weeks. into the academy for a minute. So I'm going to start with you, Kate, and say, what's it like as a disciple in the Christian Academy and in the non-Christian Academy. So I
3: think it's really flourishing because the two contexts that I've been in at a Christian university for eight years, and then uh, doing pre-field training for a number of years for people moving into Bible translation to work overseas. There was a big emphasis on mentoring students, being available to students, having conversations with students beyond the classroom Uh, in the pre-field training for People moving into Bible translation type type um, service. Uh, we lived in the dorms together. Was on staff. Staff and students lived in the dorms together. Ate together. Went on field trips together. Went hiking together. Had get nights together.
1: So uh, lots bottom. of granular relational mentor yeah, walking yeah, alongside I think each other.
3: I think discipleship is a lot about relationship. Going through life together, close enough together that there's stuff that happens there.
1: And then. There's Santa Barbara. Here you are at UC Santa Barbara. <laughs> Tell me about being a disciple at UC Santa Barbara. UC How does that work?
3: Oh, it, well, it was wonderful to study linguistics. It's such a, <laughs> such a wonderful department with amazing professors there. I just loved it. Um, and, of course, suffering at the beach was hard. <laughs> so, um, so as a student, I think there's lots of opportunities for discipleship, both yourself and as you influence those around you. Um, I'd like to particularly point out international students. Being overseas, those people look just like the people that I saw as international students in the States. So I want to really, really highlight we've got people from all over the world right at our doorstep, and they're accessible. They're looking to be welcomed. We're, we're asked by the Lord to welcome foreigners. And um, these are people that are that are ready, ready to be friends with you. And from all over the world, all kinds of backgrounds. And uh, two in particular um, started with me in the PhD program from Japan. And we became friends quickly and and started having some spiritual conversations. They were both interested in studying the Bible with me. So we started having Bible studies together. One of them started reading through the whole Bible. She got over to Acts and she was just stunned that here these little wimpy disciples suddenly we full of power and courage and boldness <laughs> that really stood out to her. Hebrews 2.15. Uh, uh, so Jesus shared in, the, in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And she just looked at that. He was quiet and looked at that and then said, I don't know why people aren't talking about this. That's huge. We're held by our fear of death, held in slavery by their fear of death. That just really stood out to her. And she was just eating it up.
1: Ray, WPI, PhD, wandering the halls of a secular university, the subject's discipleship. What's it like?
2: Often have conversations because they're in engineering fields and so. In general, they, I may find out that they're genuinely Christian and we have a wonderful conversation. Or I may find out that they're an antagonistic, agnostic or atheist you know, and, and really not, try to let them see the emptiness that without God, there's no meaningfulness at all. There's no right and wrong. There's no purpose in that life. And so that. to me, discipling means not what can I do? What one thing can I do today to spread the gospel? It's how can in everything I do, can I show the love of Christ and advance the kingdom of God in every single thing I do? And I think that's really what both of these ladies are talking about in terms of their uh, global uh, involvement and their uh, academic involvement is you've got to be discipling in everything you do and that doesn't mean just trying to evangelize it means being a mentor of what it means to be a Christian and and having Christ as Lord I think that's what um what Kate was getting to right off the bat with Lordship the
1: institutional missions organization
0: there is a dark side and
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: and the dark side that um was uh, some of the things you've talked about related to the church here has been kind of uh, being able to count people that you have led to Christ, that you have baptized. Um, that's what they wanted to know. How many how many people have you led to Christ? How many people have you baptized? Uh, to the point that it uh, became a game almost Uh They seldom wanted to know what you were doing in terms of discipling these people and sending them out. Um, And so that was that was a dark side, at least to my organization. Uh, The bright side has been, I think, sharing information um, about all of the people who have yet to hear. And I think that's a bright side. Um, some of that you point out in your book came out of the Luzanne Committee, and uh and some of that made our focus too much toward evangelism uh and turned the focus from discipleship. However, there are many pockets of the world where the gospel was not shared. About 150 years ago, I think, there was a book that was written, and it was written by a missionary who was serving in Southeast Asia, and he kept looking around him. uh, And he kept noticing that there were vast areas uh, where the gospel had not yet been shared. And he wrote a book about this great hole uh, where Christ had not been shared. And I think that's the kind of thing that we finally grasped uh, at the end of the 20th century that there were many areas where there there was no translation, there was uh, there were no churches, there were no known believers, there was nobody being discipled, there were no missionaries being sent. Uh, there were vast regions where that was true, and so I think the bright side has been that we we now know we have no excuse uh, to say that we don't know. Um, I was thinking, Dennis. One of the things that you keep mentioning in your book, as one of your light sides, your humor, uh, has been the either the worst or the best job in the world is to be the Sunday school teacher for fifth grade boys. Okay, <laughs> <Good job. laughs> and that made me think back to a situation um, I was working toward reaching an unreached people group who had no scripture, who had no me- no media. Uh, there weren't missionaries Um, there was very little that had happened among these people and there I was told that there was a church that was looking to partner with such a such a group Um, I was asked to share some information and I did with the uh, missions pastor and I can remember so vividly that I was going through he wanted some pictures and I was going through and I was looking and I had immediately passed over this picture and then I came back and it's like my hand is over it because it represented a couple who was had started doing translation work but they represented another organization and one of the rules is that you don't share information about another organization (laughs) and what they're doing, and I finally, I prayed about it. I finally decided, okay, I'm not going to say anything about what they're doing. I'm just going to send the picture, and so I sent the picture, and the missions pastor sat down with the church missions committee of about 30 people, and he's showing the pictures on a screen, and all of a sudden, the chairman of the missions committee says, why that's, and he named the young man, And the missions pastor looked at him and said, How do you know that? I didn't say anything. And he said, He was in my fifth grade Sunday school class. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, indeed, that church did become a partner. So there's your fifth grade Sunday school teacher.
2: (laughs) All right. That's a great story of the providence of God. I always tell young people who are professionals. that they need to volunteer to teach the fifth grade boys Sunday school class. <laughs> because if you can do that, then you'll become an excellent communicator to a much broader audience.
1: <laughs> it's either sainthood or purgatory. I'm not sure yeah. which. One or the other. <laughs>
2: so, <clears throat> so, Kate, one of the challenges that we face when we're in global missions is not everybody speaks English or has a Bible translation. How important do you think it is? For us to be able to translate the Bible and make it available in people's language.
3: I think it's critically important. How could we become, how could we grow as Christians if there were no Bible in English? What would we do? How would we learn? How would we, how would our churches stay on track? How would we how would how would the, the Spirit convict us like he does when we read the scriptures? There are thousands of languages around the world. And we can go into a place and we can plant churches, if they don't have scripture, that missionary needs to stay there and keep teaching and keep. But the Bible translation project, um, after after the, the national translators on the on the translation team have gone over each verse over and over again, figured out how to how to exactly to, to present it in their own language. After they've gone through that, they know the scriptures very very well. They've had a Bible college education being part of the translation project. And it's not unusual for them to become the pastors and leaders of new churches that emerge once people get the scriptures in their language. And then you know the, the, the expat translator, they can get sick, they can go home, they can have kids that need medical stuff in their home country. It's not dependent upon the person staying there. But that translation then has, it's going to stay there, it's going to get reprinted, it's going to be used there to to have the church grow and be solid and and founded well a story in
0: support of those people that spend those years um developing a a translation Um, we were put under pressure one of those dark stories we were put under pressure to do a quick and dirty that's their words a quick and dirty translation of luke so that we could move ahead with the jesus film project Um, and so i had partner who was from another country and he was discipling some young men and he took one of them aside and he said, how would you say God loves you? And so very simple, you know, little sentence and the young man thought about it and and then he told him, okay, in my language, we would say it this way. Now, this language has a number of dialects and so my partner took somebody from another county and he said if I said this to you what have I said and all of a sudden he got this shock horror and the guy said you've just said God wants to have sex with me (laughs) (laughs) so
3: there's a lot that goes into translation work linguistic work translation work cultural thing Mm -hmm. lots and lots that goes into translation Um,
0: one one of the things that that we felt was important is that often discipleship on the field, and I think we can perhaps apply this here as well, uh, isn't always one person on one person for multiple, multiple years. Um, Often, it's sequential. Often, God puts you in a place at a time uh, to have even one conversation with somebody, and he's going to bring somebody else into into that person's life. Sometimes you're working with a team, and it might be a team from your own organization or agency, or it might be a team made up of people from multiple countries uh, and from multiple organizations. And each of you has a different relationship and a different approach with some of the same people. And so some of the questions that I might answer um, might be different from some of the approaches that another person might take. And so a person is getting a more well-rounded picture of what it means uh, to uh, do God's will for his kingdom to come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, So we need to take discipleship seriously, that we need to realize that discipleship doesn't take place necessarily necessarily, Or even uh, primarily within the walls of a church, um, that it is life lived out with another person, Um, and it does require something of us. It might require sacrifice. It might require giving up some of the pleasures that we enjoy, um, both in terms of being a model and a witness, uh, and. Also, just in terms of time management, and that time is more important spent with that person than it might be watching our favorite TV program. Um, There might be major costs, there might be minor costs, but there are costs to discipleship, and we need to uh, take that seriously.
3: We're disciples and we're disciplers both all at the same time, and I think it starts with who God is. And God, of you know, the universe, he created this thing. He does whatever he pleases in his universe. And we need to fit into that. One thing that, in, that um, one reason I became a Christian was when I took a biology class in high school and saw that this biology, the side of us, neurons, all of, all of that was pretty incredible. And it convinced me there was a God. This God was very big. And I needed to have the right relationship with God. It was not for me to tell God what it was going to be. It was for me to fit in with God and God's what God said was true and right and what, what it needed to be. Because he's the king of the universe. He created the whole thing. And he says what's, what happens. So that's all part of lordship and all part of knowing God. And I think one thing that pleases him is when we pursue who he is, we may have kind of a vague, vague blob of a God floating around the universe kind of an image. But God is a person. He has a personality. There are things that make him angry. There are things that delight him. There are things that motivate him. There's things that he cares deeply about. And we want to get to know him. We want to know him. We want to be conformed to his image. We want to be more like him. We want to do things that delight him. We want to take on his priorities as our own. That takes finding out who this God is. We can look at the scriptures and say, God, show me more who you are. and, And want to leave our time in the scriptures. What more did I learn about God here? What more am I impressed about God here? What impresses me about God for reading this passage? I want to leave a church service with God being bigger <laughs> in my eyes, more more fully who he is. So he's not this blob, this nice benevolent blob floating around the universe, but that he's, he's the God of the universe who does what he pleases and he interacts very personally with each one of us.
1: And Folks, thanks us. for being with us tonight on this episode of the Disciple Dilemma. Podcast, what's it like over there? Conversation with Kate and with Lynn. Kate, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Well,
3: thank you. It's delightful to be here. Thank
0: you.
1: And Lynn, go
0: follow. Go follow. It's the greatest adventure.
1: That's my Lynn. I miss you. I wish we could be there in town with you. Thank you for being with us tonight, Lynn. Thank you. Ray, as always, thanks for all you do to make this thing work.
2: Oh, happy to be part of it and really enjoyed meeting Len and Kay. Wonderful ladies.
1: <laughs> Folks, we <laughs> hope that you will keep up with us at www.discipledilemma.com. You can also track us on Facebook, The Disciple Dilemma. You can catch us on all the major podcast circuits Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, and so on under The Disciple Dilemma. And you can even find us out on Instagram at The Disciple Dilemma. So, <laughs> thank you for listening to this broadcast. Please subscribe, please follow, helping us to get some leverage in the digital marketplace so we can take on the
2: dilemma.